Thank you, Maeve. Um, I, I also wanted to mention that um, uh, the, uh, the book whose cover you see there, um, we have uh, copies of it um, in the, the soup. Uh, and uh, if any of you are so moved, then, you know, do the right thing, you know. <laughs> and, um, and actually, um, it's, it's very nice. Nina has agreed to, um, to uh, sign copies of, of the books if, if you want to bring them to her in, in the reception afterwards. Um, I think this is a, a really wonderful lecture. I, I, I um, well, Nina, you'll be angry at me. I didn't buy your book, but I received it as a freebie from your publisher. And uh, it just showed up, it showed up in my mail one day, and I, I, I read this book, and um, I thought, this is really amazing. It's, it's um, most of us, um, I think many of us have followed the story of the, uh, the James, uh, the ossuary, you know, James, brother of Jesus, and uh, to read a book about it that uh, really brought together uh, a series of strands uh, that need to be brought together is a very, uh, it's a very valuable thing for all of us that we like to believe that what we do is scientific research and yet so much of what we do is founded in one way or another on, um, on, uh, on faith of one sort or another and there's the, uh, the famous uh, saying of some scientist, um, uh, if I hadn't believed it I wouldn't have seen it. And, um, and this, this is uh, really the, the perfect example of that. So um, um, uh, Ms. Burley's book really explores that interesting interface between scholarship, belief, uh, commerce, faith, and skullduggery, which is uh, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, Nina Burley is a, um, uh, a third-generation University of Chicago person. Uh, her grandfather went here, her father went here, and she went here for her uh, master's uh, degree. She's from the Chicago area uh, originally. Um, she spent a considerable amount of time in the Near East and uh, is currently, in addition to being an author, is also an uh, adjunct uh, professor uh, at Columbia University Graduate um, School of Journalism. She's written a number of, uh, uh, of books in addition to um, uh, uh, journalistic um, articles in, in um, major uh, magazines. Um, she's written about um, Napoleon scientists and the unveiling of Egypt uh, as a Near Eastern topic and um, is currently working on a, uh, a book about the, uh, the uh, Amanda Knox uh, murder case, uh, murder trial in uh, per uh, Perugia in Italy, which many of you may have, um, have heard about. So she covers a wide variety of uh, topics. I think this one is probably the most appropriate for the Oriental Institute. Um, and uh, she has done extensive research on it. And in the course of that research, she has interacted with people in our broader Oriental Institute community, such as uh, Morag Kersel, um, whose dissertation research on the whole practice of looting of archaeological sites and the antiquities trade really forms an important part um, of this whole narrative. So I, I think that it's a perspective on what we do um, that we normally wouldn't have a chance to really uh, learn about and understand. And it's, it's a fascinating thing that really causes us to, to question um, uh, much of what we do and, and, and be more aware of the implications of, 
of our own um, uh, professional and personal interests. So on that basis, I want to welcome you uh, uh, here, and I'd like, uh, uh, I think we'll all join in welcoming Nina Burley, who will speak to us on Unholy Business, a True Tale of Forgery, Faith, Greed, and Forgery in the Holy Land. Good evening, and thank you, Gil, for that uh, introduction. And thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here at my um, alma mater and in this lovely room in this museum. I actually grew up in this area. I was so, my dad, when he was in graduate school here, uh, we lived right down the street, and I actually played in that room over there with the winged. Um, winged bulls. So it's really quite an honor and, a, and, a, and a, uh, to be back here, a real, a real thrill. Um, and I wish I'd heard that. Uh, I don't know who the, which, which scientist uh, said that about belief and, um, and, and knowledge, but I wish I'd known that because that would have made a great, um, another great opening for the book. But thank you so much. Um, I guess the first thing I want to say is I, I'm a journalist, as you know. I'm not, a, I'm not an archaeologist um, or a scholar. And um, so a lot of people uh, kind of, the first thing they want to know is, why did you want to do this story? What, what is it about it that, that attracted you? And um, I can say that as, as it, it, it turned out that it, it became, doing this project actually allowed me to live out a bunch of childhood um, dreams. Um, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an archaeologist for a while, and then I wanted to be a detective. And what I got uh, was an English degree, and I know how to correct uh, papers and, and where uh, prepositions are supposed to go. I'm supposed to know these things anyway, and it's a pretty boring um, kind of I like it, but it sounds like a kind of a boring existence. Th doing this book ended up allowing me to be both an archaeologist and a detective, and it was really fun to do. Uh, but how I got interested, uh, I did no idea that I was going to end up doing these, be becoming archaeologist and spy at the same time. I got interested in it because in 2004, I was working on another book, involving archaeologists and French scientists in the 18th century um, who went to Egypt with Napoleon. And I was living in, an, in a house in upstate New York, and it was very cold and drafty, and it was winter. And I don't know how many of you here are writers or, or, or work on writing, but one of, our, one of the things that we like to do is procrastinate. And so I was in this freezing cold house trying to channel the Sahara Desert and procrastinating every possible way I could think of. And one of those ways was to read the New York Times from cover to cover. And I had the New York Times upstairs on my desk one day, and I read this story. It was around New Year's of 04. Um, and I read this story about the headline was um, fraud of the, of the century um, uncovered in, in Israel. And what it was was a story about these guys who had been arrested, got, who had been arrested for getting together and 
um, taking genuinely old archaeological objects, real objects, real artifacts, and altering them to, uh, to make them more valuable and also to make them appear to relate to biblical tales, biblical stories, biblical characters. And I read this, and I don't know, I have to confess my political leanings here. And there was 2004, for a lot of those from my political persuasion, the fall of 2004 was a very unhappy time. In fact, we were in shock because of what had happened, the re-election of, of um, a president that we didn't think was going to get re-elected, many of us. And I also have covered politics for years, and I was very interested in what had happened there, and I read everything. And one of the, one of the groups that had been credited with the, with the re-election uh, were, were the evangelical Christians. And so I was very interested. I've become, over the years anyway, more interested in people of faith, I guess after 9-11 in New York, um, and, and just you know, the things that are happening in, my, in people of my generation in terms of um, belief. And um, I'm not a person of, uh, who came, comes from a very religious background. I've become more and more interested in it. And so I read this article about this fraud of the century in Israel and what these guys have been doing, and I thought, hmm, how interesting. What kind of person would, would, would try to fool um, believers? Like, what, 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 you know, what's going on there? What's the, what's, what kind of a character would, would do this? And, and I have to admit that the original motive was to kind of amuse myself, I guess, by thinking about this, because I didn't, I, I didn't, wasn't happy that the evangelical Christians had helped reelect the president. Um, let me just move to. I have a very short slideshow here that I'm going to go through, and and hopefully, um, the the book when you'll see the unfortunately the book does not have any pictures in it, which uh, the editor made a call that I think wasn't wasn't so great, but these, these are not the most exciting things to look at unless you're like Morag or, or Gill who understand what these are. So I'll, um, I'll, I'll start with explaining what this thing is because it's, it's fundamental to the story. Um, and then we can go from there. The, um, the, the crux of this crime lies in this box. The, re the, the crux of the crime, the reason that it became uh, uh, that, that, that the, the, the activities of these forgers came to be known is because of this. What is this thing? Has, has anybody heard of the James Ossuary? Okay, so about half of you have, so I can give a, I, I'm going to have to explain it to the other half. It's a, it, around the time of Christ's birth, for about 90 years in Israel, um, Judea then, the, they, the ancient Israelites, or the, the, the people who lived there then, buried their dead in, a, in, a, in, a, in an unusual way. They put, the, they put the bodies in a cave, or, in a, or in, they closed them up in a dry place, and they waited a year they, until they were, the bones, the flesh had fallen off the bones, and then they would take some of the bones um, and put them in 
these limestone boxes. So they're actually like coffins, but they're not coffin size. They're, they're small. And these things are so common in Jerusalem. They're called ossuaries. They're so common in Jerusalem that people use them as planters. Um, but some of them are not common. And the, the reason that they're not common is why this one is so special. Many of them uh, have de decorations on them. A few of them have actual writing on them. Ins they're inscribed. And this one has, a, uh, has writing on it in, in Aramaic that says, um, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. This box came out of a, a private collection. It had been sitting around in Israel for a long time, according to the collector. And in 2002, it was released to the public. It was announced to the world that this box had been discovered. Um, and it was presented to the world as the first archaeological evidence of Christ's existence. Big deal, right? This is a big deal. I mean, it's not, it, and it was a big deal in the news. In 2002, the fall of 2002, it was on the cover of the New York Times. BBC covered it. CNN covered it. And it was brought to, uh, brought into the public um, by a, a lawyer in Washington, D.C., who publishes a magazine called the Biblical Archaeology Review, which is a colorful, um, uh, kind of popular magazine that goes out to uh, a great number of amateur archaeologists in this country and biblical, uh, amateur biblical archaeologists and people who believe in the Bible's literal truth and, the, and are interested in the in, interested in, in, in objects that back it up. So he brought this thing forward and at a press conference. First archaeological evidence of Christ. Now, I missed all that news. I don't, scholars in this room did not miss it. I know that they, there were people who were paying attention to it here, but, but I didn't hear anything about it. Um, it was only in 2004 when this forgery had been um, revealed and, and uncovered by the Israeli police that I heard about it. Um, but I found, um, I found this story really interesting, and I decided that uh, I would go to Israel and try to write about it. And that was in, the, in, in 2006, two years after the um, news of the, of the indictment of these five men. And um, so what I did was I, I got there in, um, I got there in the fall. Uh, I, came, I, went, I flew over for a week just to see whether I would be able to do this project or not. I had never been to Israel before. I'd never been to Jerusalem. Um, I'd been in and out of the Middle East, but I had never managed to make it there. How many people here have been to Jerusalem? Okay. Um, of course. I, um, I, so I had, some, I had certain expectations about what, what, it was, what I was going to 
meet there um, as a you know an American who consumes news here about Israel. So I, I was I had some trepidation, and I liked the story. I liked the idea of writing a book about it and examining more uh, what had happened with this this. Um, this ossuary and who these people were, but I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it. So I, I got there, and uh, it turned out that within a week, I had met all of the major players in this pro- in this um, in this trial: the forger, the alleged forger, the detective, the major collectors, because people collect this stuff, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, and I realized it was a place where I could work, and. Uh, from there, I began to go in and out of Jerusalem uh, quite a bit for a year, and I didn't I didn't live there uh, partly because my family I have children and my husband um, didn't want to up, uproot and go there, um, but so I stayed I stayed in the um, in East Jerusalem at the Albright Institute. How many people know what the Albright Institute is? Okay, it's a um, it's a it's a a, pl- a place for archaeologists in East Jerusalem. Um, East Jer- Jerusalem is divided into East and West, Arab or Palestinian and Israeli. And the um, the East the um, Albright Institute has been there for about a hundred years, and archaeologists from America. Uh, and other places, but mainly in the, it's American. It's an American as- association. Um, have worked there and do a lot of um, do a lot of. They sleep there and they, they do a lot of research there. People who are digging there will stay there. So I moved in there, and um, it's a really interesting place. It's the place where the people who translated the Dead Sea Scrolls worked. A, a lot of them lived there. And uh, there's some interesting characters there. And one of the things about it is that because it's on the east side of Jerusalem, it's in the Arab side of Jerusalem. And so I would go to the old city from the door, the front door of this, this institute, the old city being uh, the part of Jerusalem that you see when, you're seeing, when you see pictures of, of the gold dome. And, and it's... it's the ancient part of Jerusalem. And the, the reason I put this picture in is the Damascus Gate is kind of the Arab entrance to the east, to the, um, to the uh, old city. And um, I learned a lot in the first couple of weeks there just about, just from living on that side of Jerusalem about Israel and about kind of the, the context for this story. Uh, because I was crossing back and forth the old, what they call the green line, the old dividing line between Israel and, and the Palestinian side of, of Jerusalem. And um, I, I just like to keep this picture in mind because it was, it's, it's a place where, um, you know, when you're, you're an American, you're going in and out of, out of Arab um, territory now, especially it was during the Iraq War. Um, there, there's, you, you have an idea of what you're going to uh, find and you know, how you're going to be, uh, be treated, I guess. And it, 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 was, it was not that way at all. It was, I was very welcomed and, and, and in fact, um, felt quite comfortable there. And what I, but what I learned right away is that Israel is a tiny, tiny country. It's the size of Vermont. 
And you can get from, te- it, from the news, you would think it's, you know, because there's so much gravitas. It's like Washington, D.C. It's a tiny little place that has way more weight in, in world importance than its size would, would indicate. And um, the people of Palestine or the West Bank and Israel are squished right up against each other. And they, they coexist or not in a very small space. And um, so there's a lot of tension and a lot of, um, uh, a lot of kind of uh, the soldiers on the streets, there, there are roadblocks put up willy-nilly if you're trying to travel around. Um, but there is not open warfare. But it's much different from, it's not, there's not a lot of open conflict that I saw where I was. At the, you know, I didn't have, there were no bombings. There, but there were lots of sort of hassles to life there. Inexplicable traffic jams, roadblocks, lots of, lots of people with weapons. Um, and um, so that was, the, that was kind of my original immersion in, 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 this, um, in this story. Sorry. Um, now, going in from the Damascus Gate, you're on the, what they call the Arab side of, of the old city, um, you can find your way to this. Um, this is, the gold dome is the, is the kind of iconic image of Jerusalem that everybody recognizes, I think. But I don't know if everybody understands what it is, what it's called. So I'm going to give you just a little background on that before we get into the, um, these objects and why they're important. Um, it's called the Temple Mount by Israelis and by Palestinians and Arabs. And it's called the Haram al-Sharif. It's a mosque built on top of a mount that historically is believed to have been the place where the first and second temples of the Bible, Jewish temples, existed. The Wailing Wall, which everyone's seen pictures of, is at the bottom of this. Um, You can't see it because this is the very top, and it's quite beautiful. The Muslims control the top of it. This is their turf. Underneath, is believed to be the remains of, possibly, the remains of the temple, Solomon's temple, the original temple. And there certainly is the remains, there certainly are the remains of the second temple, the the temple that you read about in the New Testament. Um, And the reason this is important is that it's violently contested turf. People want this. When I was there, Every other day there were roadblocks being put up. If I was trying to cross town, there were people trying to take it back by force. And the Israeli police have to stand there and guard it. And there are guards all around it. And yet you get up to the top of it and it's this very serene, holy, peaceful place. So very, um, what's the word? It's, 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 it's oxymoronic, I guess, to be up there. Um, so that was, that's, that's, just keep that in mind as we go through this. Now, most people go to Israel, most people go to Jerusalem these days as tourists. 
I mean, a lot of people, a lot of you are archaeologists or know about archaeology, but you know, a lot of people go there as tourists. And a lot of them go there as tourists because they're, they're wanting to see the places that they've heard about in Sunday school all their lives. It's, uh, it has a great deal of meaning for people beyond just its history, obviously, beyond just its, its political history or the history of its people. It's a holy place. It's called the Holy Land. And everything, everything in it that has to do with the biblical, um, the, these stops that people go to if they're going on these Bible tours, every stop is monetized. So this, I like this picture because it's, this is the Jordan River, and it, there's a place in, where you can go. And tour, they're up, on the parking, up in the parking lot. There are about 30 tour buses every day, um, disgorging many, many people, many of them Americans, Canadians, Europeans, um, Christians who are coming down. And you can rent a little white kind of like towel t-shirt thing, and you can go down and get in the water. And you're paying for it. Um, and it's not just that. Uh, there are many other sites in, in Israel proper that are um, that you can, you can go to on these tours and that you pay for and that where you learn about the history of Israel and the history of, of the site in the context of the Bible, not in the context of the history of the, of the country or the history of the people who live there. For example, there's a place, the cave, of, they believe they've uncovered the cave of John the Baptist. They tell you when you go there that it is the cave of John the Baptist and people pay money to go there, um, but scholars don't necessarily agree that it is even the place where John the Baptist ever walked. Um, there are places in Jerusalem like that that people will, go, will pay money to go to. Um, basically, Christians have been coming to Jerusalem for centuries, long before Israel existed as a country, long before Palestine was Palestine, all the way back to the beginning of Christianity in Europe, um, the fourth century. Um, Constantine, his mother Helena, uh, in the fourth century went there and came back with what she said were pieces of the true cross. And she identified the, the location where Christ had been, um, supposedly had been crucified and brought, brought back bits of it. And now, this has been going on for centuries, so now if you go, when you go to Europe, I've just been there for living there for a little while in Italy, all the churches, even in this little town that I lived in, have relics um, from the Holy Land, supposedly from the Holy Land. The town I was in, Perugia, has this beautiful 12th century church in it, and high up in one corner, it only comes down once a year with, it takes 14 keys to get to it, is, the, is supposedly the, the, the Virgin Mary's actual wedding ring brought from the Holy Land back to Italy sometime in the, in the mists of, of the past and, and through with great peril. There's a whole story about how it got there. Um, and you see this thing, and it's basically just a big, round, like, donut-sized piece of 
jade maybe, but it definitely wouldn't fit on her finger. It was not a finger-sized ring. But anyway, it's, it's, um, it's a magnet for, for that reason. And it's also a place where people have for a very long time realized that they can sell things to people who are coming to get proof of their, of their beliefs, of, their, of the Bible. And um, one of the primary spots that you would go to to get things like this, if you wanted to bring home a piece of it, you go to the old city, and it's filled with shops uh, down these mysterious little lanes. You'll see these windows, and they're filled with things like this. And they look like museums, really. They look like things that you would see if you walked into this building and went over to the side and looked at the vitrines, looked in the vitrines. And they all have, um, a, they, they have a provenance, or they have an, they, there's, a, there's a storekeeper who, can, who will tell you where it came from and what it is. And, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, some of them are Roman, some of them are, are um, Byzantine, some of them are oil lamps from when Christ actually walked and, and there's, there are coins that um, date to the period of the money changers and so on. And you can buy them and you can pay quite a bit of money, but you can take them home and, and, um, and have them. So there are numbers of stores like this. And I'll just show you another picture of one. That was, I thought that was cute. That's a lion from supposedly a Byzantine lion. Um, and some of it's really cool. Like, I mean, I wouldn't mind having, I'm not a collector, and there were things that I thought, I wouldn't mind having that in my house. But I didn't buy anything yet. And this is the reason why. Sorry, I'm not a photographer. That's, this is my <laughs> attempt at getting the whole thing into the frame. My husband's a photographer, and I borrowed his camera, his like professional camera. So it's a good camera, but it's not. It's me. So, anyway, I was trying to get a picture. This is called the Rockefeller Museum, and um, it's in East Jerusalem, also, and it has a connection to the Oriental Institute. In the 1920s, it was built with a grant by John from John D. Rockefeller at the suggestion of archaeologists from the Oriental Institute to house finds from the region. Um, but it's like everything else in, the, in this country, in this very um, fought-over country, um, it has a political history and it's changed hands. So it started out as the, as the Rockefeller Museum and the Oriental Institute and the, the Anglicans ran it, or the, the, the uh, English speakers ran it, and then it became the headquarters of the Palestine Archaeological uh, Association. And then in 1967, in the 1967, the Israelis took that part of, of Jerusalem and actually used, used this as a, they used the turret as a gunning area. And now it houses um, something called the Israel uh, Archaeological Authority, the IAA. It's still a museum, and it's literally a stone's throw away from the Temple Mount. Like, it's over the wall from it. It's not in the old city. Um, anyway, the IAA is a, um, 
It's an, it's an age, tiny little agency that's set up uh, to protect the 30,000 archaeological sites in Israel. Um, it's a lot of archaeological sites in, this, in a place the size of Vermont. And it's very underfunded. It's, there are 12 men who, who work there, and um, they um, are basically meant to keep the uh, people from taking things from these sites, but they obviously are completely incapable of, of keeping track of everything. So this gentleman here is the head of the IAA. His name is Amir Ganor. He's an archaeologist, he's a scholar, and he's a cop. You can't see it, but he carries a Glock on the other side of his pants there. He never takes it off. He's a soldier, like, the, like all the Israeli men are. Um, and he runs this, this uh, organization. He's got 12 men. And um, one of his big jobs, because he can't, he can't possibly keep track of 30,000 archaeological sites, but one of his big jobs is to keep tabs on these guys in the old city who are selling things to tourists who were selling the Herodian oil lamps or the um, Byzantine crosses for a lot of money. And um, he here uh, has, he has a collection of interesting things that he's found in his work. And what he's holding right there is, I don't know if you can see it, he has um, a beautiful example of what they call over there Roman glass. Roman glass, is, it's amazing that there actually is glass that exists in Jerusalem from Roman times. It's very pretty. It's mostly broken into bits, and people make jewelry out of it, or uh, it's very pearlescent, and it, you can have a little piece of it and make a necklace, or, or you can find a whole one, a whole vase, a jug, and then you're really in luck. And what he's holding in his hand there is a, is a Roman glass vase that, he, uh, that a tourist brought to him for which he or she had paid 1500 bucks and he he took one look at it and he said I'm sorry I don't think that this is worth 1500 bucks because if you x-ray it it's actually that thing can you see what he's got in his other hand it's a it's a light bulb very very beautifully decorated as a roman glass 2,000 year old jug. So he has this, he has a collection of stuff like this behind him in his office along with a big Google Earth map of the old city. And um, this is sort of, this is kind of what he does. He, he keeps tabs on these guys if he can. He checks in with the dealers. They're all supposed to be licensed. So he checks in with them to see where they're getting their stuff and what they're selling it for and whether it's real. And he, by his estimation, 90% of what's in these little stores is fake. So, and he's an expert. So I don't know, I didn't, I didn't buy anything. I ran into some people who were buying things, but um, the, um, you know, if you go there, just keep that in mind. It's nice to have some of it, but don't pay 1,500 bucks for it unless you have somebody like him look at it first. Um, so anyway, back to our story. And I don't want to give the whole story away because I do hope some of you will buy the book. But he, the ossuary was under his, this man's uh, purview. The fact that th th this thing was found in Israel, 
brought to the brought to the attention of the public big famous find you know that's his job to know what that thing is and so CNN the first time he hears about it is on the day that Mr. Shanks the biblical archaeology review editor brings it forth at a press conference in Washington DC CNN phones up this guy whose English is not very good and he gets the call and okay the first archaeological evidence of Christ has been found it's being brought forth in Washington DC actually it was going to be shown in Canada they had found a museum that they were going to bring it to it was no longer in Israel and um, and he was really annoyed because you know first of all he's going to be embarrassed they were trying to tell and get a comment from him and he didn't even know what it was and um, secondly he found out pretty quickly who the collector was who who belong, who it belonged to and he had met with the guy a week before two weeks before and the guy had shown him his whole collection and you know m made sure everything was kosher and it never said to him oh by the way the first archaeological evidence of the existence of Christ belongs to me and it's about to be sent to Canada and I've insured it for a million dollars it's really important um, so he was angry about that and he he started um, he started looking into it now this is around 2002 the fall of 2002 but before he got too far into figuring out what was up with this ossuary with this amazing inscription on it he was distracted by something else and, and then something else is what led to the unraveling of this mystery um, he was told that in, in the, the museum in, in Israel, one of the major museums, had been shown a, a, um, a tablet with some writing on it. And it was a very important writing, very important tablet. It was so important that the guy who was showing it around to these museums had it in a briefcase handcuffed to his wrist. And he was bringing it to the museum and these other places, and he was asking for a lot of money. And um, the museum was prepared to trade a Rembrandt or like wire hundreds of thousands of dollars into a into a Swiss account for this tablet. Why? Because it turned out to have a text on it that was almost identical to a text in the Bible, in, in um, 2 Kings 12, for those of you who know the Bible, um, Old Testament text, referring to repairs being made to Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple, the first temple, the temple which housed the Ark of the Covenant, the temple that had walls of gold that, were, that was sacked by the Babylonians. And here was this tablet that even that, that referred to repairs, of, and even in the language of the of the Bible. So, the this information about this was leaked out, and the newspapers in Israel had written about it. And the day that was in the newspaper, right after the ossuary had come out in the United States, um, Mr. Ganor gets a phone call from top political people in in Israel, saying, "What is this tablet?" We need it right now in our hands. Why do they want this thing right now in their hands? Because it's, it's an incendiary object. Because it basically says, here we have 
a piece of rock from thousands of years ago that proves what we've always been saying all along, that underneath that mosque is that the ruins of this temple, the first temple, Solomon's temple, which is a, a fundamental piece of, uh, of, of, of uh, a fundament of the Bible, the Old Testament, fundamental to the belief systems of Jew, Jew, Jews and Christians. And also fundamental to the notion that that mosque shouldn't be on top of it. And that, in fact, that piece of land called the Temple Mount or Haram al-Sharif should be called the Temple Mount. And whoever's on top of it put with the mosque should be out off that top of the mosque. And this is a big issue because in Israel, as I just told you, the soldiers are constantly protecting that place from people who want to take it back. And they're, you know, it's, it's hotly contested turf. So... Amir Ganor has to go out and find this tablet, and that's what he starts to do. Now, where does he go? One of the first places he goes, when he starts looking into this, he's got to go and meet the collectors. The people, the people there's a small community of people in, in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv who know where all the really important things are in biblical in the unprovenanced world, biblical archaeology, not the archaeologists who are sitting in this room who know where all the important historical stuff is, but people who know where the stuff that's worth a lot of money and that's real is. This guy, his name is Shlomo Musayev, fascinating character. Biggest dealer, or, sorry, biggest collector of biblical archaeology, biggest private collector of biblical archaeology in the world. He has 600,000 objects and they're mostly in Switzerland because they're, they're, that's where you can put your stuff in these, in these warehouses. Um, but he also has an apartment in London, an apartment in, in Tel Aviv, filled with things. Um, he's a wealthy jeweler, born in Arab Jerusalem, born before Israel existed. He's not a religious man, he told me. I interviewed him. Obviously, I wouldn't have this picture because... I took that picture, um, and he's, um, he's collected this stuff since he was a little kid on the streets of, of Jerusalem in caves. He started collecting coins, and then he moved from coins to bigger stuff and bigger stuff and bigger stuff, and now he, he, will, he is known to write million-dollar checks to people. Just, they'll, you know, they'll just come to his apartment with something, you know, from Iraq or, you know, Yemen or, you know, anywhere that has to do with uh, Jewish history. He's very interested in biblical history and proving not the Bible, not that God exists or that God gave, you know, that the Ark of the Covenant was Solomon's temple, but that, that, that the history of the Jewish people in the Bible is is real, and, and he's collected this stuff because he partly has that in mind. He also just has a, a collector mentality, and he likes to have more and more of these things in his, in his collection. Um, and I was in his apartment in Tel Aviv early on when I started working on this, and he showed me his stuff. He's got lions, supposedly, lions... Um, that belonged to the Queen of Sheba, millions of, millions of dollars worth of ancient coins, um, these things called seals and seal impressions, like wax seals, um, 
beautiful uh, semi-precious stones that are seals with the names of Old Testament kings on them. And um, he sometimes will use a scholar, call a scholar to verify something. His, his, when I was there, his house is basically an, an indoor market. And all, when, he's, when he's in Tel Aviv, people are coming in and out of his, his apartment, this penthouse on the Mediterranean, always um, with things to sell him. And I was sitting there interviewing him, and it was going on right in front of me. People were coming in with things wrapped in towels and... And um, they would go off in a corner, and he would, you know, talk to them, and then he'd come back and continue to, to talk to me. And he just, um, he, he doesn't often need to use a scholar because he feels like he's been in the business for so long of collecting this stuff, he knows what it is. So he just buys it, and he, he's known to do that. He's known to write these gigantic checks, like $100,000 check, if he likes something. He'll just, on, on, the, on a gut feeling, he'll just pay for it. And then later, he might check and see what it is. Uh, you know, make sure that it's, uh, you know, accurate. But he, he I mean, not, not a forgery. But he's basically an excellent mark for anybody who wanted to make fakes. So, Ganora went to him, um, the detective. And, um, oh, this is, I just put this in here because people are always saying to me, Oh, you went to Israel and you were there for you were in Jerusalem and you went around and it was must have been so incredibly dangerous, and and oh, there you know, weren't you in peril? And this is basically as perilous as it got. He's trying to like give me a big wet smacker on the way out, and I was pushing his head away. Um, so this guy here is um, he, his name is Oded Golan. He's another member of the collector class in, in, in Israel. Not as big a collector as, as um, Mosiah, but big, 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 big collector. And he happens to be the guy who owned the ossuary, the James ossuary. He's an interesting character also. All these guys are interesting characters. He's a collector. He's totally secular. He's got a lot of money from his family. Um, and he's lived kind of an interesting life. I mean, he's, he's had a, um, uh, he's trained as an industri industrial engineer, um, but he never really worked as an engineer. He's worked as a tour guide and traveled around the world a lot. And he collects ossuaries and he collects other, um, other antiquities from the ground. They're plucked from the ground in this country that he, where he was born. He's younger than Musayev. He's one of the first generation. His parents were one of the first generation of emigres to then um, Palestine from Europe. Uh, they're they're like the they're like the Mayflower people. The founding parent, founding, uh, or his grandparents. Sorry, they're Russians, and um, and they came over and they they lived in the. Um, in, in Palestine before it became Israel. And, and so he's, he's an interesting guy. And the cops, the cops were basically, they went to his house to see where, what he knew about this Ashura, and they were quite suspicious of him um, because the, there were already scholars in the United States saying, I don't know if that Ashura is real or not. And um, they didn't trust him, and they, they felt also that he may know something about this. They had heard that he may know something about this mysterious and incredibly important tablet so they were interviewing him for a long time, and, um, and they followed him around, 
and you know they, they the way that he does his business is you know it's 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 dirty it's not they all they all buy stuff from people who are looting sites it's not these objects don't come out of the ground um, on their own somebody's out there taking it and they, they they pay money for them and so they followed him around and finally um, they noticed some weird things they got they got warrants for his house and they found these weird these suspicious I guess you could say things boxes of half-made figurines and plans for other inscriptions on paper and um, they, they didn't trust um, they didn't trust him and they they finally got the ossuary um, back from Canada and they got the tablet out of his hands he, he, he finally confessed that it was his so they took these two objects to their warehouse well actually they took it they took them back to the um, to their the head, their headquarters and um, just a little digression here they, they this is this is the warehouse where they put the ossuary and as you can see you see how common they are this is the, the downstairs of the building. It's, it's just filled with them, just filled from across, you know, on and on, endless numbers of, of, um, of ossuaries. Um, now, the archaeologists in this room understand this, but I just want to give you a little background on archaeology and, and the difference between archaeology and objects found in art by archaeologists and objects found by somebody like this collector. This here is a pot. Um, one of the a giant pot that um, maybe once held olive oil or something and um, as you can see it doesn't look very nice right it's basically just a bunch of pieces of crockery that somebody's managed to put together but this is how they found it this is how they find these things um, real archaeologists work in the hot burning sun. This woman was just sitting in the middle of a road, in a, a dirty road, dirt road, and she's sitting out there all day long with a little pickaxe and a little sponge. And that thing under, that thing that looks like a bunch of rocks that you and I would just drive over, that's one of those pots that she's going to end up, they're going to end up taking it, pulling it out of the ground and putting it together. And it's a piece of history and it's explaining what the people of that part of the world in that time period how they lived and that's what archaeologists do and they're the natural enemies of these collectors and these dealers because they want to find this stuff in the ground and um, most of the time they um, they're toiling in obscurity there's some of them right here who are doing that and they, and they are you know once in your lifetime you find some amazing thing I mean, it's not like Indiana Jones. It's not um, glamorous, but they're working really hard, and they don't like the um, these dealers and collectors who take this, who pay a looter to come in the middle of the night and and find like things that have not been broken, which you can still find there in tombs, and um, take them out and sell them for a lot of money. So, what happened was. Um, they brought the, this is an archaeologist named Yuval Gorin. He's actually, he's a scientist. He's an expert in rocks and dating, dating of, of archaeological objects. Um, 
what they did was they brought these two objects back to the IAA warehouse in, in um, Jerusalem, and outside Jerusalem, and they formed a team of scientists to look at them. And this guy was one of the um, people that they put on their, on their team. And it's really hard to find disinterested scholars in, in Holy Land archaeology because a lot of people come to it with a belief system. And as Gil said, I know it because I, I believe it because I know it. I know it because I, anyway, you, what he said, it, was, it made absolute sense. You, you find something you want to see, you want to see it, and then you see it. And so a lot of this is going on with these objects. And um, so it was hard to find a disinterested person. And what they did was they picked this guy, Yuval Goran, who's a very soft-spoken guy. He just happens to be pretty secular. He's not, a, he's not a religious guy. And he works at the University of Tel Aviv. And they had him go with other people. But he was kind of the head of it. They had him go through and examine both the ossuary and the, um, uh, this tablet. And they found pretty quickly that the ossuary, the writing on it, where it said, brother, wait, sorry, James, brother of Joseph, jo- Joseph, brother of Jesus, sorry, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. The part that said brother of Jesus had the, these, these ancient, these, these, these ossuaries, because they've been sitting in caves for two centuries, a biological um, substance builds up on their surface called a patina. And the patina dates it in a way. And so what happened was there, was, there were letters, the second half of the inscription actually, was cutting through the original patina. And they had stuck a, a different kind of biological material, very carefully made, so that you would only recognize it if you were like this man, who's an extreme, extremely meticulous and he has expertise in using a microscope to look at these, this material um, and recognize that it was different from the biological material on the rest of the, of the uh, ossuary. And um, it also, when he, when he looked at it even more closely, he found that it had been adhered with modern substance, adhered into these letters. And he called this substance James Bond, because it was like some kind of glue. <laughs> that, and, but unfortunately, when he was working on examining it, he pulled it out. And this became very important when these guys went on trial, because no longer was the fake patina in the, in the letters. Okay, So... Anyway, that's as far as the ossuary. There are other reasons why they identified it as a forgery, but that was one of the main ones. And um, and then as far as the tablet, same thing. I mean, the tablet was it was people people who were expert in language uh, in in ancient languages looked at the language and said, "No way, man! That is not ancient. He, you know, it's not ancient Hebrew. It looks like it, but there 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 are constructions that are not right." And, um, and plus, the, 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 the tablet itself was flecked with gold. And it was like too perfect because the idea was that it had survived the burning of Solomon's temple. And because the, burnt, the Solomon's temple supposedly had walls of gold, that these, this thing had been inside and like gold had fallen into it. 
So it had been, it'd been made specifically to look like that. At least this is what people who believe they are not real say. So anyway, fast forwarding, they went on trial, five guys, Oded Golan being the, top, the, the, the main alleged culprit. And they've been on trial since 04. It's now 10, 2010. Uh, they are still on trial today. They're, um, what's happened is um, they've put a lot of archaeologists in the stand. The, de the defense has taken each individual, they've, hundreds of archaeologists have testified, or at least 100, as, as of the time I was there. And these archaeologists will get up, and they're not used to being grilled by the most expensive lawyers in Tel Aviv, first of all. They're used to lecturing like I am to a room full of students. Half of them are falling asleep, and they're just telling people what, they're, what, they've, what they know. They're not used to defending it. And they've got these lawyers who just come in with a book that they wrote 20 years ago, and they say, well, but you said here, didn't you, Professor, that the, that the, letter, the letter bet could have an extra long leg on it. And then, you know, he's just been spent an hour saying it's a fake letter because actually they never wrote their letters in the year 70 AD like that. And they hold up his book and he just collapses. So basically what they've done is they put archeolo arche biblical archaeology on trial in this little tiny courtroom in Jerusalem. Nobody's even paying attention to it. They've got really expensive lawyers. Three of the guys have been already let off for statute of limitations reasons. I think one guy served time because he, he's the Palestinian and he was like involved in the looting, the actual looting of the stuff. So they threw him in jail for a while, but he's out. And the two main guys are still there. Oded Golan, still there, probably going to get out. And the other guy is his, his, um, his dealer. They hate each other now, but his, his dealer, this guy has an office in this building. And um, it's in Jaffa, which is outside of Tel Aviv. And here's, this is where he sells his things. And I just, I like that because it says licensed to sell ancient history, which he indeed is licensed to sell. And I just leave you with this image because that's basically the front door of his, of his shop. And he's a major, major dealer. Um, and um, that's the trial is, is, is at the moment um, still going on very slowly grinding to a close. They're probably going to be acquitted. And as one of the um, archaeologists in, at the University of Tel Aviv told, uh, said to me, you know, when they're acquitted, it's going to change things a bit because in a few years, you will see um, Muhammad's sword and Solomon's sandals, and they'll be for sale. And it's just the way it'll go. It'll just go on like that, and it'll, they'll, they'll have been verified. So anyway, I'll leave you with that. Thank you for, for listening to me. I really appreciate you taking Thank you for having me.